all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. Monday, January 16th, 2023, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero. This week we're talking about a heartwarming species that... <laughs> Sorry. Nice. Some jokes. <laughs> it's a good joke. It, it's a good joke. I was like, What? <laughs> We're talking about a heartwarming species that in 2015 jumped from relative obscurity to all the lists of fish trivia out there. We're talking about the opa. Opa! <laughs> I thought you were going to do your little yell, too. <laughs> opa! I'm not, what is that, Greek? I'm not Greek. And I'm very pleased to introduce our guest. We've got Nick Wegner. Nick's a research fisheries biologist with National Marine Fisheries Service in their Southwest Fisheries Science Center. And we are very happy to have you as a guest to talk about the OPA. So welcome. Thanks for having me. So we know there's a few species and we're curious how they fit together in terms of how they are taxonomically and where they're found. Yeah. So when I started working on the OPA, we just called it the OPA, but there's one main species that was called Lampriscutatus and is also called like the spotted opa. So it's got these white polka dots. And then there was another species in the Southern Ocean that's a little bit different shape, a little bit more streamlined called the Southern opa. And then some of my colleagues have been on this for a few years and from kind of interactions with fishermen and others, it's come to light that some of them look just a little bit different. And so now it turns out that one single species of spotted opa has now been changed to five species. Mm -hmm. And there may be more. It's hard to tell them apart and they live in different regions, but we find them throughout the world. And so now we have two species in the North Pacific, the small eye Pacific opa and the big eye Pacific opa, which is where I work. And those are the species that I come across. What is causing these two species to diverge evolutionarily from one another? Are they occupying different habitats or something? Because you think about a big open ocean fish, there should be a lot of panmixia going on. You're exactly right. It seems like these fish are separating into different niches. There's this small iopa and this big iopa, both in the North Pacific. And there were some studies done looking at the movement patterns of what we thought was one species. And you can see there were just two different modes of movement Mm. and two different modes of things they were eating. And it turns out that they were probably studying these two different species and didn't recognize the difference between the two. And so the big iopa, it's got a bigger eye. It's actually found a little bit deeper than the small iopa, smaller eye, closer to the surface, Mm. eating more surface-oriented prey. That's cool. Did they take fin clips on that study or like any DNA? Yeah, exactly. That's how they started figuring it out. So originally, commercial fishermen in Hawaii and some of the guys at the fish market were like, hey, how come some of these opa have bigger eyes than other opa? And you're like, what? (laughs) And so they actually put them side by side and you can see that, yeah, actually the big eye opa has a bigger eye and you wouldn't notice unless you had them side by side. And then, yeah, then they started doing a, a genetic study. Some of my colleagues took fin clips from species throughout the world and show that what we thought was a global species is actually five different species. That's so cool. Yeah. So this is a really neat fish. And I know I say that about all the fish we have here, but this one's really neat. And we like to set the stage at the beginning of each episode to help folks get a mental image of the fish we're talking about. So I was hoping you could pretend you're in the ocean, you're lucky enough to come across an opa. And we know there's more than one species, but in general... 
what would you see? What colors are they? How big are they? Just what do they look like? They're a pretty amazing fish and pretty weird looking. So Opa mm-hmm. is their Hawaiian name. So also called the moonfish. They're round like the moon. I think they get that name from their kind of silvery coloration. But really, if you were to see one live underwater, they're actually kind of like a deep crimson red with a bunch of really long fins sticking out and then covered in white polka dots. So it's all mm-hmm. something you would think you'd see in like a comic strip or something like that. That's cool. And what's really cool about them too is that they actually swim by using their pectoral fins. So these are fins on the side of the body and they flap them like wings. So they almost look like a almost like a penguin flying through the water. I think a lot of people would be like, what is that thing? (laughs) I'm coming around actually on your phrasing, your favorite phrase on the show, if you held this fish in your hand. Why didn't you phrase it that way this time? I thought they were kind of big and I wanted to imagine being in the ocean with them. I don't imagine I would catch one. So I thought it'd be cool to be a scuba diver today and view one from the water. Yeah, well, it'd probably be hard to see them in either case because, you know, they're kind of a mesopelagic fish, they're pretty deep. So the only time people have really actually seen them underwater is uh, when attached to a fishing line yeah. and being brought up. There's so much we don't know about them, but what we do know about them is a lot from just looking at their physiology and their morphology and then our few brief views of them underwater being pulled up by fishermen. I guess the other reason I ask it that way is because the colors are so beautiful. And sometimes when you have a fish in your hand or it's dead or whatever, I don't know. I just, I wanted you to describe this one as just being. Yeah, they definitely lose that coloration pretty quickly upon capture. Most people think they're just a silvery fish and their whole body is is crimson red. It's really cool. Kind of lose that when they get stressed out or obviously after they're caught. Does that coloration have to do with where they are in the water column and light and visibility? Yeah, exactly right. Down at depth, the red light is the first light that gets filtered out as it penetrates the ocean. And so if you think about a fish living in this low light twilight area, if you're red, you're basically kind of a blackish color Mm -hmm. uh, because there's no red light down at that depth to reflect their color. So they blend into that kind of low light environment. That's cool. And how big do these guys get? Yeah, they get up to about 200 pounds or so. The common size to catch them is right around between 100 and 150 pounds. So yeah, they're pretty hard to hold up by yourself. What's the diameter of a fish that's 150 pounds? It's weird measuring a fish in diameter. I've never seen one from the front. Yeah, I'm not sure how thick they are. So yeah, the diameter, like height and length are like probably like three feet or so, but then thickness are probably only like eight inches thick. So they're Mm -hmm. really tire shaped. Based on your description of these fish, they seem to be pretty strong. What's it like trying to bring? A 150-pound opa onto a research vessel for tagging and trying to keep it alive and everything like that. Yeah, we actually built a what we call the opa stretcher. Oh, gosh. It's basically, <laughs> a, uh, yeah, it's basically like a, um, it's a steel hoop, and then we have this vinyl sheet underneath it with holes in it so that the water can come out. So we pull the opa next to the stretcher and scoop it up out of the water and lift it out on a hydraulic wench, and then we can set it down into like a shallow pool where we can work on it, fix a tag to it, and then we can lift it up and put it back down into the water. So yeah, they're big animals and they have a really powerful tail that they can kick in when they want to. Do they get like the tuna jitters? Yes, they do. Yeah, they shake and they shake and use that Ah. tail just like a tuna. So most of the time they're flapping around with those pectoral fins and then they've got that weird shape. So they're actually a pretty decent fight pulling against those guys. 
so Nick, what these guys? They got a weird kind of body shape. What? <laughs> what are they hunting down there? What are they able to really chase down? I have a friend that's been doing some diet studies on Opa, and he's found everything in there. Right, so there's like squid and fish. And then he's found like, he found a lime wedge and half of an <laughs> onion. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So they, they're generalists, right? So they seem to be pretty opportunistic. Not enjoying life. Yeah. Yeah. I think there might be a chef on the boat just pulling <laughs> pranks on you guys. You know what? I actually did that. So the same guy <laughs> who found the lime wedge and the onion, I actually snuck in a pack of Skittles one time and he called me and he said, yeah, thanks for putting those Skittles in my, you know, Opa stomach that I was dissecting. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? You know, I went on this elaborate thing. I was like, this one time we were having a hard time catching Opa. And so we made some sacrifices over the side of the boat. We started throwing M&Ms and Skittles and stuff. And I guess one just eat it. Coming with Skittles. Yeah, I almost got them. He was like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. Oh, that's a good one. The definition that I was given of a fish when I first went into ichthyology was a poikilothermic aquatic <laughs> chordate with appendages when present, developed as fins whose chief respiratory organs are gills and whose body is usually covered in scales. I like how you changed your voice there, guy. That was very definition-ish. Oh, did I? You were like, do, do, do. yeah. <laughs> well, this fish, it's got scales, it's got gills and everything like that, but it, it really challenges the poikilothermic part there. So maybe we can talk about thermoregulation in fishes. You wrote a really interesting paper about that kind of got taken off into the science media. Everyone talking about this new warm-blooded fish. Can you tell us the details about what that study was looking at and why people are calling this fish warm-blooded? Yeah, I don't use the term warm-blooded and cold-blooded too much. But I think everybody kind of has a good idea of what they mean until you start digging into the definitions of them. And so what we usually talk about are endothermic fish and ectothermic fish. And most fish are what we call ectothermic. Yeah, ecto is outside and therm is related to temperature. So it's like their body temperature dependent on the outside environment. There's a, a few fish, maybe 20 species or so out there that include things like tunas and lambent sharks and billfishes that are what we call regionally endothermic. Endo means inside and then temperature. So they produce some of their own heat and they're able to retain it. And these fish are able to warm up just parts of their body. So they're regionally endothermic. And then we get into OPA, which you get into a more, what I call a full body form of endothermy. So you're starting to warm up like the whole body, not just like parts of the body. And that's why it separates OPA from all other fish out there. Some of the other fish you mentioned, what areas are they trying to warm up? And yeah, just be curious why the OPA are so special in this way. So a couple of different types of regional endotherms. The billfishes, so this includes swordfish and marlins, they're able to warm up their eye and brain region. And that helps with visual processing and resolution so they can kind of respond faster to prey stimuli and things like that. And then tunas and landmid sharks, they're able to warm up their eye and brain region also, but then they're also, in addition to that, able to warm up their red muscle region. And so the red muscle is what's used in continuous swimming, essentially. And so that provides some advantages. So if they dive deep down into cold water, they're able to kind of maintain that same level of muscle function while they're down at depth. What's really cool about the OPA is actually able to do both of those things 
but also warm up the rest of the body core too. So they circulate warm blood through the whole body, including warming up the heart, which is unique among all fish. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these very active predators like tunas and laminated sharks, they'll dive down deep, but over time, and actually quite quickly, the heart starts to cool down as blood circulates through the body and goes past the gills. And so they have to come back up to the surface to warm up. And OPA, they're able to kind of stay down at depth indefinitely because of this this adaptation to keep their whole body warm. And you can think about an animal that's down at depth that's warmer than the things it's eating, it can outperform them. So it can swim around faster, respond quicker, and so it gives it a really distinct advantage. What structures does the OPA have that provides this whole body endothermy? Is it like Reet Mirabile, these other guys kind of have, or do they have extra structures? Yeah, exactly right, guys. So what's really cool about OPA is the placement of what are called uh, Rite Mirabile, which is Latin for wonderful nets. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful net of blood vessels. And these blood vessels act as a countercurrent heat exchanger, which essentially allow the animal to retain heat within specific parts of its body. So basically, there's kind of two problems for a fish being warm in the water. The first is it can lose heat through its skin. And then the second is it can lose heat at the gills. They breathe water, right? So all the blood has to go through the gills. Touching the water, yeah. And if they lose the heat at the gills, then, you know, they're going to be the same temperature as the water. And so what OPA have done is they actually have these special countercurrent heat exchangers located inside their gill arches. Mm -hmm. So they basically separate the gills from the rest of the body in terms of temperature. And so the gills are cold, but the rest of the body is able to maintain warm. How did you guys feel when you found that out? What was your like mental state when you discovered this? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. So my background is in fish physiology and I did my PhD work looking at fish gills mm. and actually looking at the gills of laminid sharks and tunas and trying to figure out how they get the oxygen they need to sustain their fast swimming when they're partially warmer bodies. And so I went for my PhD, I went around the world collecting gills from these different species mm. to compare them. And a friend of mine, Owen Snodgrass, who who works with me at the Fishery Science Center now, he came up to me and he said, hey, Nick, we're catching OPA on this research cruise that I've been on. Do you want me to save you some gills from OPA? And of course, being like a gill nerd, I was like, yeah, of course, got to have gills. Never had a gill nerd on the show before. This is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. It's great at parties too. People ask all the time, how do fish breathe? And you just say, through the lamellae, right? You know, which, which is a part of the gills. But anyways, so he collected some gills for me and preserved them. And I didn't know much about OPA at the time. Mm-hmm. And so actually they sat in a bucket of preservative for about a year. And I saw him like several months later, a year later, and he said, hey, did you look at those OPA gills that I collected for you several months ago or a year ago? And I said, oh yeah, it's actually going to do that this afternoon. So <laughs> I did that, right? And I, I pulled the gills out <laughs> and I cut into, this, into the gill arch and I saw all these blood vessels inside the gill arch. And I was like, whoa, there's supposed to be like two blood vessels in here and there's like thousands of blood vessels. Like what is happening? Did you call your friend back? I called him back. Yeah, I said, <laughs> I'm coming on that next cruise. <laughs> we went back out on the cruise and we caught some OPA and we actually in postmortem injected the blood vessels with a vascular casting solution, which is if you've ever been to like a body's exhibit at a museum or like a display or anything, it's- I want to, I haven't, yeah, I haven't done it yet. Yeah, it's really cool. So we were able to do that on OPA. And so we injected that into the gills and we could see where all the blood vessels were going. And once we did that, I was like, oh my gosh, I think these might be for 
maintaining a warm body temperature. And then we started piecing together all these other supporting pieces of evidence. They've got this like fat layer over their pectoral muscles that kind of insulates their body core, and which is completely weird for a fish too. Now we got to get some temperature measurements from these dives. Huh. You see these structures and now it's time to like actually go out and see if you can get some measurements and figure out one, is the body actually warmer? And two, all right, if their body's actually warmer, it suggests that they're having to produce this heat somehow and maybe be a whole lot more active than their body plan suggests. So where did things go from there when you actually got out on that next cruise? Yeah. So after we saw these gills and we're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. We went out and we caught a bunch of opa. And once we brought them up on deck, we were actually able to take their temperature using the thermo pen. Basically what you would use to check the temperature on your turkey uh, Thanksgiving dinner. After the animal was sacrificed, we would take their temperature in different parts of the body and you could see that their whole body core was actually warm. And then we're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I was still in a little disbelief. I was kind of like, I don't know, because we catch them from deep down, right? And I'm like, maybe they're just like warming up as we bring them up, you know? So then we actually kind of retrofitted some temperature loggers, got some live fish and put the thermistors on the fish and then let them go. And we were able to recover those tags and get a whole temperature profile of the fish seeing that, yeah, when they're diving up and down, they maintain this warm body temperature. All the other lineages of fish that we've talked about that have developed this regional endothermy, they've kind of evolved similar niches and they have this kind of convergent evolution where they get these streamlined forms. They're doing lots of swimming, long distances they're covering. And then the opa just goes out and becomes a compressive form fish, which we know is more situated to maneuverability than it is long distance swimming. Usually that's what you think about when you see fish like that. So what is this fish's ecology like and why is it so different than these other sort of endothermic fishes? You know, when I was first starting this study and when we saw these blood vessels in the gills, I didn't really think that they were necessarily for heat conservation because I thought an opa was kind of just a dopey fish that maybe used its pectoral fins to kind of tread water and just kind of flap around in a small area. But it turns out that they are very similar in many ways to tunas and these lambded sharks. They do seem to migrate long distances. They hunt uh, pretty active prey. And so there's a lot of similarities, even though their body shape is is so much different. They have this kind of narrow body shape, which doesn't seem that efficient for um, keeping the body warm, right? There's a lot of surface area to lose body heat through there. And so that's something that I'm actually pretty interested in looking at is the Southern Opa, which has a more kind of fusiform, streamlined body. It's shaped a bit more like a tuna and they live in the Southern Ocean. So like colder temperatures. So I think that they've probably kind of developed that rounder shape to further insulate their body in the Southern Ocean. I hope to make it down there at some point and look at that species of lopa in more depth. I guess I was just curious if some of the sharks you mentioned are able to compete with these fish because they have a similar kind of capability or what's eating these fish at that depth? Yeah. So Opa's main predators are large sharks and and marine mammals. We've started a tagging project with some collaborators at the Flagler Institution of Environmental Research. And when you tag these animals, you can actually sometimes see when they get predated by a large shark. And you'll see this fish bouncing up and down and the tags on the outside of the fish is cold. 
And then you'll see, see either a Mako or a gray white that Lopa gets eaten. And then actually Makos and gray white sharks are able to warm up their stomach temperatures. And so you can see the fish gets really warm. <laughs> <laughs> so what temperatures are these guys actually keeping their blood at? And is that relative to the outside temperatures? Is it still affected or are they actually keeping a constant body temperature? So they're usually between, and it depends on the part of the body, but between three to six to eight degrees above ambient. And this is degrees Celsius. So their core body temperature is usually about five degrees above ambient seawater. So they're definitely not the same as a mammal or a bird, right? They're not keeping this constant temperature at 37 degrees Celsius or 98 degrees Fahrenheit. They're kind of in between. But what's really cool is that they're able to kind of maintain that whole body endothermy. Perfect. Thank you. to maybe kids or young people entering the fisheries field. Do you have any advice to them or just any inspiration given cool discoveries you've been making? Yeah, I was a kid, five years old, wanted to be a marine biologist when I grew up and used to visit Southern California in the summers. And my mom said I liked going to the tide pools more than I liked going to Disneyland. Hmm. Follow your dreams. Like, Fish are cool. The marine environment's cool. Some people are interested in fish. Others are interested in the physical aspects of the ocean or whatever it is. But there's lots to be learned, lots of discoveries to make. I mean, I think, you know, something that's really cool is, you know, just how little we know about the ocean and about fish in general. You know, it's just like fish are so amazing. If you asked me like a few years ago, was there a fish that could like warm up its entire body, I would have been like, no, no, you know, that's crazy. And in fact, a few years before that, when I was a graduate student, when I was first learning about endothermic fishes, my major professor studied endothermic fishes uh, his, his whole career. And I said to him one time, I was like, wouldn't it be cool if a fish could put the countercurrent heat exchanger inside the gills or really close to the gills and that would let it warm up its whole body? And he was like, Psh. There's no space for that. And it's just so crazy. He had told me that wouldn't be realistic. And I had convinced myself that it wasn't realistic. Then we see it. He passed away before I made this discovery. It's really sad because he would have loved it. He would have been so amazed. I would have brought him into the study because he would add some good insight on it. I did actually email a guy on my graduate committee because he published a paper that not very many people knew about the OPA in the 70s. And he saw like the fat that was like lining the side of the body of the animal. And he saw like the big pectoral muscles that these guys had. And he was kind of like, it seems like they could warm up their body, but there's no evidence for it. And we couldn't find a countercurrent heat exchanger. So it's not possible. Oh. And so like I emailed him and he was like really excited about it. So That's it's cool. kind of cool to see people make like these partial discoveries like 30, 40, 50 years ago. And then, you know, they come full circle. What's the National Marine Fisheries Service's interest in this fish? The National Marine Fisheries Service is interested in them because they are becoming more and more popular as a food fish. And out in Hawaii, they're pretty popular. They're becoming more popular here on the West Coast. But we really don't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything about their basic biology. We don't know how old they are. We don't know that much about their movement patterns, where their long-term migrations are. We know they're not spawning up here in California, or we think they aren't. 
they spawn in tropical seas. So we want to figure out more about their migration periods, how old these are, just basic biology about these animals. Yeah. Awesome. It'd be a fun job trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking up like from an eating standpoint, the different cuts on this fish and we've gotten to Hawaii and seen the different colors of the fillets. And I'm just curious if you have insights into why those fillets are different color and if it has something to do with, like you mentioned, fat along the pectoral fins that they're using for swimming or just, yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, there's a lot of chefs actually here in San Diego and then also in Hawaii that are experimenting with the different cuts of meat from Opa. They have this white pinkish meat that's on the back and in the side of the fish, which is very reminiscent of other pelagic fish, very similar to tuna. And then they have their pectoral muscle which is what they use for kind of this continuous swimming, has several different shades of red. And that has to do with the different amounts of iron in it. Some of this pectoral muscle almost looks like beef. You know, it's really dark. Um, And so, yeah, the chefs are experimenting with different ways to eat this. I've had opa ribs, which were pretty good. Lots of different food coming from a single fish. And is this a smart seafood choice? I know you mentioned there's still a lot to be known about this species and just some of the basic biology, but if people see opa on the menu, is that something they should be trying and is it an okay choice for conservation? Yeah, we generally think so. But again, the jury's out in a lot of their life history, a lot of their biology. So that's why we're interested in learning more about them, specifically, you know, how fast do they reach maturity and There's never been like a formal stock assessment done for OPA. We didn't even know how many species there were until a few years ago. So there's a lot of work to be done. Okay. What fisheries are OPA that are being caught and put to market coming from? And when those fish are caught, are they a welcome surprise? Are they kind of an unwelcome fish that, yeah, we'll bring it in anyways? I think for the most part, at least in in the U.S., OPA are caught on these deep set long line fisheries for mostly for big eye tuna and mostly caught by the Hawaiian fleet. So they're targeting big eye tuna and swordfish, but they catch OPA as a welcome bycatch and they've really developed a good market for them. And from talking to some of the commercial guys, they kind of have an idea of where the OPA are lots of times. And if they need to fill the rest of their hold on their way back, they'll be like, okay, let's do an OPA set mm-hmm. and let's get a bunch of OPA to round off our catch for the trip. You guys work with fishermen a lot to fill in some of the knowledge gaps in terms of where the fish are or just general ecology stuff? We work a lot with both commercial and recreational fishermen. and uh, They're a great resource. They're the eyes and ears out in the water. They see the fish. They catch them all the time. And so they can really tell us where to start and a lot of kind of answering these basic biology questions and provide a lot of insight into where their movements are and where these fish are kind of located. How can people help if they are catching OPA or if they catch an OPA and they want to give you guys some information? They can definitely reach out to me. You can find me on the internet. Our Southwest Fisheries Science Center has a webpage. We've got a page on OPA and some ways to reach out to us on there. We always like hearing about OPA. Even though I said that commercial fishermen can target them, for us as scientists to get access to live animals is pretty hard without going out on a uh, three-week longlining trip. It's great to hear when recreational fishermen get them or others get them closer to shore. And and that helps us when we're trying to tag animals or collect biological samples, we can make more targeted efforts. You've kind of solidified yourself as like the OPA guy. Do you have any 
like recipes or anything that like when you were seeing people at parties and you know you see their eyes start to wander when you really get into the lamelle and the gill structure and everything <laughs> like that and you just try to reel them back in by telling them uh, but there's this cool recipe that you can cook up you got anything like that you can share with the folks at home sure yeah yeah i've got a miso opa recipe which is really good and then <laughs> i just love opa you know it's it's sashimi grade so you can eat it raw and it's really good it tastes like tuna it's great i love it <laughs> awesome I was thinking miso and then miso pelagic and making some play on that. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's a good one. <laughs> That's all I got. No. Awesome. Okay. Well, this Good night, folks. All right. Well, get out there and enjoy all the fish, including all you gill nerds out there. And we hope you follow along with this amazing fish as more is learned. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.